commercial space, and the software that will take us to the moon. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Artemis program, the agency's next moonshot, is set to take flight early next year with an uncrewed mission around the moon and back slated for February. NASA leveraged its commercial partnerships to build the massive SLS rocket that will take the mission there and is calling on private companies to build the lander that will take humans to the lunar surface. But some commercial partners were upset they were left out and filed a lawsuit against NASA. We'll talk with commercial space policy analyst Laura Forsick about the lunar litigation and what's ahead for the massive program that aims to put humans on the moon once more. Then, to get to the moon, NASA's moon rocket needs some directions. We'll revisit a conversation with NASA's Anton Kirawas about the software that will fly SLS to the moon and back. Lunar ambitions and commercial space, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. NASA selected private company SpaceX to design and develop a spacecraft to take humans to the lunar surface. The company bid its Starship spacecraft, a massive vehicle coming together at SpaceX's West Texas facility. Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin also bid a lander design and lost out on the initial lunar missions. Blue Origin sued, stopping work on the program. That litigation is now over, but has the damage been done? To talk about the inner workings of commercial space and NASA's lunar ambitions, we're joined once again by Laura Forsick, space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Well, Laura, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin lost its federal lawsuit against NASA. Uh, this was stemming from the agency's selection of SpaceX for a human landing system to take astronauts to the surface of the moon and back. Take us back a bit. What were the grounds uh, for Blue Origin's litigation? We don't know the specifics because the lawsuit has been sealed. However, we do know from their government accountability office protest that they thought it would be for NASA's best interest to select two providers. So whether that's SpaceX and Blue Origin or SpaceX and Dynetics, which was the other competitor. Um, And they also had safety concerns. They also uh, did didn't believe that NASA handled the selection properly in that NASA went and negotiated the price or the timeline of the price, the, the timeline of the, the payment schedule with SpaceX after SpaceX had um, passed certain uh, criteria within the selection process. And Blue Origin didn't like that because they didn't get the opportunity to negotiate down their price. Mm-hmm. And what was NASA's response to to all of this? Yeah, NASA's response publicly was to keep uh, you know quiet and, and to let the litigation play out. But behind the scenes, there was a grumbling that Blue Origin had bet and bet wrong and that they were dragging out the process. Mm-hmm. Does Blue Origin have a point here? I mean, what are the risks of using just one provider for something that 
is a very crucial part of of NASA's moon architecture. Yes, Blue Origin does have a point, and even NASA's Kathy Leaders, who wrote the selection document, agrees. She um, was the the person in charge of this when um, the selection was made earlier this year, and even she wrote in the selection document that it is important to have redundancy, and that's why everyone expected NASA to select two providers, whether that was SpaceX and someone else or two other providers. However, right in that source selection document, Kathy Leaders wrote that NASA simply did not have the funds. This uh, this initiative had been underfunded for several years. And so it was essentially NASA saying, yes, we want to select a second provider, but Congress needs to give us the money. And so it's a big political game. Mm-hmm. Um, the lawsuits behind them, um, NASA and SpaceX are moving forward with the uh, Artemis lander with with Starship, at least for the first uh, few missions. Um, what's ahead for for the Artemis program now? Has has there been any long lasting damage from uh, this this litigation process? No long lasting damage, but there has been delays. So while this process was ongoing, both both the Government Accountability Office protest and the lawsuit, NASA has put on hold its activities with SpaceX's human landing system. But now that the lawsuit is over and Jeff Bezos, the founder of Blue Origin, has already said that they are not going to do anything further, then essentially NASA has a green light now to work with SpaceX to prepare for Artemis 3, which is that first human landing on the moon since 1972. And what we see coming down the line is NASA has already been preparing for the future, for the next selection, because it doesn't end with Artemis 3, at least we all hope not. Um, there will be Artemis 4 and Artemis 5, etc. And so NASA has something called the Lunar Exploration Transportation Services, if I'm getting that acronym correct. Um, so NASA is going to put out another call for additional uh, contracts to send humans to the surface of the moon. And you better believe Blue Origin and others are going to go ahead and bid to to carry those astronauts for Artemis 4 and beyond. Mm-hmm. Laura, you mentioned a word that seems to be synonymous with Artemis, which is delay. Um, this program has long been delayed and over budget, but as you mentioned, there is a launch on the horizon. I mean, do you think folks will, will forget about just how long it's taken to get to this point, just how expensive it's been once this rocket actually launches? Well, taking a big step back, and I think a lot of people expected there to be a continuation of NASA sending humans to the moon It's in the 1970s and 1980s. And so in a way, this is a decades-long delay because of additional programs that have started and stopped. Um, both Presidents George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush had uh, missions to the moon to send humans back to the moon that were both canceled. And so finally, we're seeing with Artemis a continuation of NASA's going beyond Earth orbit to the moon and then to Mars and beyond. And so looking at the big picture, it's exciting that this is finally happening, whether it happens in 2024 with humans landing on the moon, which is the current target goal, or whether it happens in 2025 or 2026. I almost don't think it matters. In the big picture, it's finally happening, and that's truly what matters. Mm -hmm. I mean, Laura, something like Artemis this is a huge project that takes a lot of money, which requires a lot of public support. And I'm wondering, you know, in the terms of public buy-in, how does something like this compare to, say, you know, selling the Apollo program to the American people? Are there any parallels between these two programs and and the kind of strategy um, that people at NASA have used 
to kind of get people on board with this. Yeah, it's a very different time. So back during the Cold War, we saw this big national push to beat the Soviet Union in space. And and the Soviet Union got the first human in space, so they beat us there. However, NASA wasn't done. And so NASA wanted to get to the moon to, to prove that the United States was better than the Soviet Union. And that's exactly what happened. And we see a little bit of a similarity here where we have a competing uh, a competing initiative with China partnering with Russia to do their own human lunar exploration and a lunar base. About a decade after the Artemis program is, is targeted to start, however. So it's not truly a race, but it is a bit of a competition where NASA wants to say, we want to get to the moon with our international partnerships and our commercial partnerships before the Chinese and the Russians do. And so what we see now is much more collaborative effort where NASA has been leading this Artemis Accords initiative and getting uh, partners internationally as well as partners commercially. Um, And that's really important for the sustainability of the program. It won't just be suddenly canceled once we say we beat the Chinese and the Russians to the moon. That goal is to have it be sustained and long lasting so that we build a permanent settlement on the surface of the moon to help us prepare to go to Mars and beyond. Let's talk a bit about private companies. Um, SpaceX, um, Elon Musk's SpaceX, just returned its second long-duration space station crew last night. It plans to launch another crew as early as tomorrow, which by my count will be its fifth human mission in under two years. I mean, can you just reflect on this, Laura? This is a pretty incredible milestone for a commercial company, isn't it? It really is. And I remember watching that mission last year uh, in May. I was actually live on television watching that, and it was emotional because never before had a private company done something that only governments had done, launching people to orbit. Um, And so it is pretty extraordinary that we almost take it for granted now, watching the crew to capture will splash down and and just knowing that a private company can do this and now we see um, all the possibilities ahead of us, whether it is orbital space flight, suborbital space flight, sending people, you know, not just government astronauts, but maybe in the future, private individuals to the surface of the moon and beyond. I mean, it really does open up all of the science fiction that we've been waiting for for so long because it's happening. It's science reality right now. Um, and it takes time and it's certainly not easy and it's certainly very expensive, but it really goes to show how far we've come. Mm -hmm. Laura, you and I have talked about SpaceX and the commercial crew program for as long as I can remember covering this beat. Um, Did you ever think that within the first two years we'd get to a point where there would be a landing on a Monday night and a launch on a Wednesday night, a 48-hour turnaround like this? Um, It's certainly not common, but I sure hoped that we'd get to this point. In fact, um, same-day launches, launching multiple missions on the same day or different activities of of, uh, returning and landing and and launching. I mean, this is what we hope for, right? We hope for these um, regular operations so that spaceflight can be much more accessible, much more available, and much more common. And hopefully bring the price down as well. And so what we want to see is something a little bit more akin to the airline industry where we've got planes taking off and landing every day and we don't even think about it because there's just so much activity going on. And that's going to take quite a number of decades still for spaceflight to get anywhere near airlines. But that is the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. 
uh, one of those companies that's trying to reach that goal with regular space flights is Blue Origin with its new Shepard uh, space tourism capsule. Um, we've saw two high-profile flights so far. What What's ahead for, for Blue Origin and space tourism? Yeah, so space tourism for Blue Origin just started this summer, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. In fact, they haven't even announced their ticket prices, but they seem to have sold quite a number of tickets behind the scenes, where we recently saw um, both flights flying the uh, record breaker for the oldest person in space, as well as the youngest person in space on that first flight. Um, we had... Uh, two paying uh, individuals on the last mission, and I believe that they want to increase the number of people on board New Shepard from four to six. And so what we're seeing is a ramp up of activity with Blue Origin. Blue Origin has already been flying uncrewed uh, payloads, you know, scientific experiments and research on board their capsules. And now it'll be a combination of uh, launching research missions and launching uh, private individuals as they ramp up their orbital and beyond program. So New Glenn is coming on board. That's their rocket that's been in development for quite some time. Um, they have space station plans. They recently announced Orbital Reef, which is the commercial space station in partnership with other companies and organizations. So this is a way for them to make money and mature their technology in suborbital space flight so that they can do more. Mm -hmm. And about the, the 60 seconds we have left here, Laura, Virgin Galactic is also another uh, space tourism company with with plans to have frequent flights um, to the edge of space and back. They've opened up ticket sales once more. What do we know about Virgin Galactic moving forward? Yeah, Virgin Galactic has paused so that they can upgrade their technology and build a new uh, upgraded space plane. Um, they're taking a little bit of a slower approach. When they have um, about 700 tickets sold so far, but they're not planning to start operations really until about a year, maybe even a year and a half from now. And so we're just going to have to see how that plays out. But hopefully they'll be able to start launching very quickly once they get their technology ready. Laura Forsick is a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks again for joining us. Thank you again for having me. Still to come, the software that will take NASA's SLS rocket to the moon. But before we head to break, Are We There Yet? is coming up on its 300th episode. Later this month, we'll revisit some of my favorite conversations, and I want to hear about yours, too. Let me know your favorite episode, and we'll highlight it on a future show. Just send me an email, yet at wmfe.org, or tweet the show at awtyspace. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Teams at NASA's Kennedy Space Center assembled NASA's next moon rocket, SLS. Part of that assembly included installing critical flight software that helps steer the vehicle as it takes off from KSC on a mission to the moon and back. To talk more about that software installation and what's ahead for SLS, we're revisiting a conversation with Anton Kirwas, a launch project engineer at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. We spoke back in August. Anton, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. So tell me a bit about this software that's being installed on the SLS 
Uh, what does it do? Sure. So we this week uh, spent some time within our uh, launch control center in the firing room loading up what we call the flight computer application software. So this is a series of software that was developed by the Marshall Space Flight Center uh, specifically for the SLS Artemis One flight. And uh, it has now been uh, certified and approved for use for the Artemis One flight. And so we went ahead and loaded it onto the three flight computers that the SLS vehicle has. And what is the software responsible for? So the software that we have on board the rocket is responsible for controlling everything within the rocket. It takes into consideration all of the hundreds and thousands of sensors that the vehicle has within the engines uh, and along all the rest of the vehicle. And it's responsible for actually flying the mission into low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it's it's been installed on flight computers on the SLS. You said there were three of them. Uh, first of all, can you tell me where these computers are, and are there three computers that work in tandem together, or are there three computers in case there might be an issue with one of them? So that's exactly right. There's, uh, you know, NASA is uh, famous for our redundancy, and so we run in what we call a triplex configuration, and that means we've actually got three flight computers running the exact same software at exactly the same time, and they are actually voting on what actions the, the vehicle needs to take. And so we load that same software onto all three of them. We confirm that the image is loaded successfully, and then uh, we're about to get into a pretty large test campaign uh, over the next couple of weeks here where we test out everything on the vehicle, make sure that all the interfaces as we continue stacking and assembling the vehicle are done correctly and that everything's talking properly before we go into our, our big tests, which are our countdown sequencing test and our wet dress rehearsal test. Mm-hmm. And where are these computers located physically on the rocket? So they are actually, um, we've got different computers that we load, and there's a lot of different avionics boxes that we load. These ones are loaded in the inner tank section. Gotcha. If you imagine the vehicle, you've got uh, kind of a very long tank, and then you've got a shorter tank on top. In between is that section we call the inner tank. Gotcha. And you said this this gets gets, gets the vehicle all the way up into orbit, right? And then I would assume that's when the there's similar software on the Orion capsule, right? That's exactly right. We actually have three sets of avionics on this vehicle. The flight computers that we're referring to right now on the SLS core stage are responsible for the control of both the core stage itself and the RS-25 engines that we have on there, as well as the two boosters that are attached. We have a separate set of flight computers that are responsible for controlling our interim cryopropulsion stage. That's our second stage of the rocket. And then finally, we've got a set of computers on board the Orion capsule as well. Gotcha. And Anton, let's let's take it even a step further back. Um, this software, I mean, was this developed specifically for this spacecraft, or is this kind of an off-the-shelf solution NASA has? What went into developing this software? So this software has been in development for uh, a very long time uh, within the SLS program, and it this specific version of the software is for Artemis 1. There's a lot of different parameters that you have to get right. You have to know exactly when the mission is going to take place. You have to know what your windows look like. And we have done thousands and thousands of tests. Uh, both the Marshall Space Flight Center has tested from a mission perspective, making sure they've gone through all the different scenarios that they need to account for, um, as well as doing the ground launch sequencing tests that we do as well. 
we actually have folks here from Kennedy Space Center that travel out to various test labs, including the uh, systems integration lab for the SLS rocket. And we test our ground software and make sure that it's going to work with the flight software. We actually tested this flight load that we just did here uh, several weeks back to make sure that that was going to work properly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, can you quantify just how complex this is? How many lines of code or, or how big is this software? I mean, just just how complicated is this? You know, I'm not exactly sure how many lines of code uh, are in this flight software itself. I'd probably have to defer to some of our Marshall engineers who are responsible for uh, actually developing that software, and they'd be uh, much better at telling you that. What I can tell you is that um, the testing that we've done is extensive. There are hundreds and hundreds of scenarios, uh, different failure modes that we test for to make sure that the rocket can uh, accommodate and still handle that. Or more importantly, we test and make sure that if any of those situations happen on the ground prior to flight, that we're able to go ahead and stop that launch and make sure that the rocket's ready to go before we actually get to lift off. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that testing. Um, how 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 do you talk to the software while the rocket is on the pad? How, how do you how do you link up to it and and run these tests? Sure, that's a great question. So we've got several umbilicals that we have that connect. The, uh, the ground systems to the flight systems. And I always say that essentially the, the purpose of those umbilicals is to keep the vehicle happy. Uh, in some <laughs> cases, that means providing commodities such as uh, nitrogen to keep things purged. That can include the fuels itself, the liquid hydrogen, the liquid oxygen. Uh, in this case, for the computers, that includes data and communication. So we've got both uh, power that we provide to the vehicle to make sure that everything's powered, the batteries are charged, and everything's ready for flight. And we also have a lot of data that is coming down these network links that provide us with all the telemetry coming off the vehicle and allow us on the ground directly from our firing room to send commands up to the vehicle to sequence all of that processing and all of that launch leading up to T0. Gotcha. And and so there's testing is underway now, right, with Marshall Space Flight Center, but you said there's also going to be some testing at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, can you kind of go into a little bit of detail as to what's going to happen and, and what mission managers like yourself are going to be keeping a a keen eye on during this testing phase. Sure. So uh, Marshall is continuing to test that flight software. Again, they are going through all of those uh, certifications as we work our way towards that uh, final certification of the vehicle for flight. Uh, Down here at Kennedy Space Center, we are testing the vehicle itself. So After each stage of assembly, we go ahead and we test every one of those interfaces. So we're going through a big campaign that we call IVT. That's the Interface Verification Test. And that is part of our larger ITCO test, which is the Integrated Test and Checkout Campaign. So again, this is the first flight of a a brand new vehicle. We want to make sure that everything on the vehicle is as perfect as it can be before we're ready to fly. And so we go through sequentially. We have uh, created in our partnerships with uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, along with the Johnson Space Center, uh, thousands of requirements that we've done and, and documented that say, what does the vehicle need to look like so that we are confident in its ability to fly? And now the engineers here at Kennedy Space Center are executing each one of those. We've built a very large test campaign that's going to go through each one of those sequentially, making sure that we meet those requirements. And where we don't, we want to make sure we understand how. We want to get it back into configuration, test it again, and make sure that we are ready to fly. Anton, you mentioned this particular software was designed specifically for the Artemis One mission. Um, I'm wondering about future missions. 
are, is that software being developed in parallel to this mission, or are you going to be using what you've learned from the Artemis One software and the Artemis One mission to build the next version of this for the next mission? So absolutely, this provides our baseline. Uh, and that's true for both the flight software that we just loaded on, and it's true for the ground software that we've developed here at Kennedy as well. It's kind of our baseline from Artemis One. We'll adapt it as the requirements change. As you uh, may already know, we are adding a lot of capabilities to the Orion capsule to support the uh, the first crewed mission for Artemis Two. All of those capabilities are gonna need to be tested, so we're gonna have to adapt our ground software. The mission profile for Artemis Two is slightly different, uh, but there's a surprising amount that we can do with data loads. So one of the things we did during this flight software load that we just did this week is it was actually done in two phases. One is to load the flight software itself. And I don't want to say that it's generic, but it is it is a very versatile set of software. The second thing we did is we loaded what we call our uh, data loads. And those data loads actually provide a lot of the parameters that you need that are mission specific. And so by changing those parameters for Artemis 2, we're going to be able to reuse a lot of that software that we developed for Artemis 1. Mm-hmm. And assuming all goes well with the testing at, at Marshall and, and the testing at the Kennedy Space Center between you know, the software and, and uh, the way that you communicate with it, what, what's the next major milestone um, that you're looking towards for SLS? So once we complete all of the interface verification testing, uh, we are marching our way towards the countdown sequencing test. This is a kind of a countdown test that we do inside the VAB itself. This is the first time we get to sequence all of the ground software that we've developed, including uh, including our ground launch sequencer. Uh, and that's going to work in tandem with that flight software that we've loaded on there. Now, there's a whole lot of systems you can't test in the VAB. You don't have all the same commodities. You don't have all the same pad support structures that you would. But that's going to let us kind of ring out all of that to make sure that while we've been working in parallel and we've been testing in labs, does it work on the real hardware? And that's where the rubber will really hit the road. From there, we will move on to our wet dress rehearsal. And that's a very big test for us here at Kennedy Space Center. That's where we actually roll out on the mobile launcher. We bring it to the pad. We're actually gonna load the tanks full of commodities. Uh, that includes the liquid hydrogen and the liquid oxygen. And we're gonna count down almost all the way to T0. Uh, the purpose of that test is, again, to just make sure that now that we've actually done everything, we've included all those commodities, included all those other systems, that everything works the way it's supposed to. And that'll be the last final test we do before our actual launch countdown and launch. Lots of exciting stuff happening at the Kennedy Space Center. We've been speaking with Anton Kirawas. He's a launch project engineer at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Anton, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Don't forget, this show is celebrating 300 episodes later this month. In November and December, we'll look back on some of my favorite conversations I've had on Are We There Yet? But I want to hear from you, too. What have been some of your favorites? You can go ahead and send me an email, are we there yet at WMFE.org, or you can tweet the show at AWTY Space. I'll share those shows as we go into the new year and look forward to 300 more. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE with the support of our listeners. You can make a contribution to this show to help fuel its success for 300 more episodes by going to WMFE.org slash support. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan or visit our website, WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis, and the show's intern is Maria Brasino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.